Welcome to Bite at a Time Books, where we read you your favorite classics one bite at a time. My name is Brie Carlisle, and I love to read and wanted to share my passion with listeners like you. If you want to know what's coming next and vote on upcoming books, sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com. You'll also find our new t-shirts in the shop, including podcast shirts and quote shirts from your favorite classic novels. Be sure to follow my show on your favorite podcast platform so you get all the new episodes. You can find most of our links in the show notes. But also our website, biteatatimebooks.com, includes all of the links for our show, including to our Patreon to support the show, and YouTube, where we have special behind-the-narration of the episodes. We're part of the Bite at a Time Books Productions Network. If you'd also like to hear what inspired your favorite classic authors to write their novels— and what was going on in the world at the time, check out the Bite at a Time books behind the story podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note, while we try to keep the text as close to the original as possible, some words have been changed to honor the marginalized communities who've identified the words as harmful and to stay in alignment with Bite at a Time books' brand values. Today we'll be continuing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. By Jules Verne. Chapter 19. Torres Straits. During the night of the 27th or 28th of December, the Nautilus left the shores of Anacoro with great speed. Her course was southwesterly, and in three days she had gone over the 750 leagues that separated it from La Prose's group and the southeast point of Papua. Early on the 1st of January, 1863, Conceal joined me on the platform. Master, will you permit me to wish you a happy new year? What, Conceal? Exactly as if I was at Paris in my study at the Jardin des Plantes. Well, I accept your good wishes and thank you for them. Only I will ask you what you mean by a happy new year under our circumstances. Do you mean the year that will bring us to the end of our imprisonment? Or the year that sees us continue this strange voyage? Really, I do not know how to answer, Master. We are sure to see curious things, and for the last two months we have not had time for dullness. The last marvel is always the most astonishing, and if we continue this progression, I do not know how it will end. It is my opinion that we shall never again see the like. I think, then, with no offense to Master, that a happy new year would be one in which we could see everything. On 2nd January, we had made 11,340 miles, or 5,250 French leagues since our starting point in the Japan Seas. Before the ship's head stretched the dangerous shores of the Coral Sea on the north end coast of Australia, our boat lay along some miles from the redoubtable bank on which Cook's vessel was lost, 10th June, 1770. The boat in which Cook was struck on a rock, and if it did not sink, it was owing to a piece of coral that was broken by the shock and fixed itself in the broken keel. I had wished to visit the reef. 360 leagues long, against which the sea, always rough, broke with great violence, with a noise like thunder. But just then, the inclined planes drew the Nautilus down to a great depth, and I could see nothing of the high coral walls. I had to content myself with the different specimens of fish brought up by the nets. I remarked, among others, some germans, a species of mackerel as large as a tunny, with bluish sides and striped with transverse bands that disappear with the animal's life. These fish followed us in shoals and furnished us with very delicate food. We took also a large number of gilt heads, 
about one and a half inches long, tasting like dories, and flying pyrapeds like submarine swallows, which, in dark nights, light alternately the air and water with their phosphorescent light. Among the mollusks and zoophytes, I found in the meshes of the net several species of alicarians, echini, hammers, spurs, dials, cerites, and hylaei. The floor was represented by beautiful floating seaweeds, laminarii, and macrocysts impregnated with the mucilage that transudes through their pores, and among which I gathered an admirable nemostoma gelineroi that was classed among the natural curiosities of the museum. Two days after crossing the Coral Sea, 4th January, we sighted the Papuan coasts. On this occasion, Captain Nemo informed me that his intention was to get into the Indian Ocean by the Strait of Torres. His communication ended there. The Torres Straits are nearly 34 leagues wide, but they're obstructed by an innumerable quantity of islands, islets, breakers, and rocks that make its navigation almost impracticable so that Captain Nemo took all needful precautions to cross them. The Nautilus, floating betwixt wind and water, went at a moderate pace. Her screw, like a cetacean's tail, beat the waves slowly. Profiting by this, I and my two companions went up on the deserted platform. Before us was the steersman's cage, and I expected that Captain Nemo was there directing the course of the Nautilus. I had before me the excellent charts of the Straits of Torres, and I consulted them attentively round the Nautilus the sea dashed furiously. The course of the waves that went from southeast to northwest at the rate of two and a half miles broke on the coral that showed itself here and there. This is a bad sea, remarked Ned Land. Detestable indeed, and one that does not suit a boat like the Nautilus. The captain must be very sure of his route, for I see there are pieces of coral that would do for its keel if it only touched them slightly. Indeed, the situation was dangerous, but the Nautilus seemed to slide like magic off these rocks. It did not follow the routes of the Astrolab and the Zele exactly, for they proved fatal to Dumont d'Urville. It bore more northwards, coasted the islands of Murray, and came back to the southwest towards Cumberland Passage. I thought it was going to pass it by when going back to northwest. It went through a large quantity of islands and islets little known, towards the island south and Canal Mauve. I wondered if Captain Nemo, foolishly imprudent, would steer his vessel into that passage where Dumont d'Urville's two corvettes touched. When swerving again and cutting straight through to the west, he steered for the island of Gilboa. It was then three in the afternoon. The tide began to recede, being quite full. The Nautilus approached the island that I still saw with its remarkable border of screw pines. He stood off it at about two miles distant. Suddenly, a shock overthrew me. The Nautilus just touched a rock and stayed immovable, laying lightly to the port side. When I rose, I perceived Captain Nemo and his lieutenant on the platform. They were examining the situation of the vessel and exchanging words in their incomprehensible dialect. She was situated thus. Two miles on the starboard side appeared Gilboa, stretching from north to west like an immense arm. Towards the south and east, some coral showed itself, left by the ebb. We had run aground, and in one of those seas where the tides are middling. A sorry matter for the floating of the Nautilus. However, the vessel had not suffered, for her keel was solidly joined. But if she could neither glide off nor move, she ran the risk of being forever fastened to these rocks, and then Captain Nemo's submarine vessel would be done for. I was reflecting thus when the captain, cool and calm, always master of himself, approached me. 
An accident? I asked. No, an incident. But an incident that will oblige you perhaps to become an inhabitant of this land from which you flee. Captain Nemo looked at me curiously and made a negative gesture, as much as to say that nothing would force him to set foot on terra firma again. Then he said, Besides Monsieur Aranax, the Nautilus is not lost. It will carry you yet into the midst of the marvels of the ocean. Our voyage has only begun, and I do not wish to be deprived so soon of the honor of your company. However, Captain Nemo, I replied, without noticing the ironical turn of his phrase, the Nautilus ran aground in open sea. Now the tides are not strong in the Pacific, and if you cannot lighten the Nautilus, I do not see how it will be reinflated. The tides are not strong in the Pacific, you are right there, Professor. But in Torres Straits, one finds still a difference of a yard and a half between the level of high and low seas. Today is 4th January, and in five days the moon will be full. Now I shall be very much astonished if that satellite does not raise these masses of water sufficiently, and render me a service that I should be indebted to her for. Having said this, Captain Nemo, followed by his lieutenant, redescended to the interior of the Nautilus. As to the vessel, it moved not, and was immovable as if the coralline polypi had already walled it up with their indestructible cement. Well, sir, said Ned Land, who came up to me after the departure of the captain. Well, friend Ned, we will wait patiently for the tide on the ninth instant, for it appears that the moon will have the goodness to put it off again. Really? Really. And this captain is not going to cast anchor at all since the tide will suffice? said Conceal simply. The Canadian looked at Conceal, then shrugged his shoulders. Sir, you may believe me when I tell you that this piece of iron will navigate neither on nor under the sea again. It is only fit to be sold for its weight. I think, therefore, that the time has come to part company with Captain Nemo. Friend Ned, I do not despair of this stout Nautilus as you do, and in four days we shall know what to hold to on the Pacific tides. Besides, flight might be possible if we were in the sight of the English or Provencal coast, but on the Papuan shores it is another thing and it will be time enough to come to that extremity if the Nautilus does not recover itself again, which I look upon as a grave event. But do they know at least how to act circumspectly? There is an island. On that island, there are trees. Under those trees, terrestrial animals, bearers of cutlets and roast beef, to which I would willingly give a trial. In this, friend Ned is right, said Conceal, and I agree with him. Could not Master obtain permission from his friend Captain Nemo to put us on land, if only so as not to lose the habit of treading on the solid parts of our planet? I can ask him, but he will refuse. Will Master risk it? asked Conceal, and we shall know how to rely upon the Captain's amiability. To my great surprise, Captain Nemo gave me the permission I asked for, and he gave it very agreeably without even exacting from me a promise to return to the vessel. But flight across New Guinea might be very perilous, and I should not have counseled Ned Land to attempt it. Better to be a prisoner on board the Nautilus than to fall into the hands of the natives. At eight o'clock, armed with guns and hatchets, we got off the Nautilus. The sea was pretty calm. A slight breeze blew on land. Conceal and I rowing, we sped along quickly, and Ned steered in the straight passage that the breakers left between them. The boat was well handled and moved rapidly, Ned Land could not restrain his joy. He was like a prisoner that had escaped from prison, and knew not that it was necessary to re-enter it. Meat? We are going to eat some meat, and what meat? He replied. Real game, no bread indeed. 
I do not say that fish is not good. We must not abuse it. But a piece of fresh venison grilled on live coals will agreeably vary our ordinary course. Glutton, said Conceal. He makes my mouth water. It remains to be seen, I said. If these forests are full of game, and if the game is not such as will hunt the hunter himself. Well said, Monsieur Aranax, replied the Canadian, whose teeth seemed sharpened like the edge of a hatchet. But I will eat tiger, loin of tiger, if there's no other quadruped on this island. Friend Ned is uneasy about it, said Conceal. Whatever it may be, continued Ned Land, every animal with four paws without feathers, or with two paws without feathers, will be saluted by my first shot. Very well, Master Land's imprudences are beginning. Never fear, Monsieur Aranax, replied the Canadian. I do not want twenty-five minutes to offer you a dish of my sort. At half-past eight, the Nautilus boat ran softly aground on a heavy sand, after having happily passed the coral reef that surrounds the island of Gilboa. Thank you for joining Bite at a Time Books today, while we read a bite of one of your favorite classics. Again, my name is Bree Carlyle. And I hope you come back tomorrow for the next bite of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter at biteatatimebooks.com and check out the shop. You can check out the show notes or our website, biteatatimebooks.com, for the rest of the links for our show. We'd love to hear from you on social media as well.